looks at the heart. The premise for this series is that life is lived from the heart. So many of the choices and decisions that we make originate from what is in our heart. The human heart is a little bit like the CEO of the individual. Um, Brian Shirley's double, Dallas Willard, in his book, The Revolution of the Heart, says the person with a well-kept heart is someone who is prepared for and capable of responding to the situations of life in ways that are good and right. In Proverbs 4.23, we read, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Now, we tend to separate the head and the heart, and we we tend to think about the heart as kind of the place of, of feeling and emotion, and the head, the place of thought and intelligence and rationality. But the Hebrew understanding of the heart was very different. You see, they understood the heart to incorporate the entire person, body, mind, and spirit. And so when the scriptures speak of the heart, they're referring to the very core of who a person is. This is the understanding in both the Old and the New Testament. And indeed, this is what we will be referring to as we journey through this series. This sermon series is going to be about the heart. The heart of each individual. And it's interesting when we think about the human heart, whilst this isn't the most pretty thing to look at, probably a better word to use, but it looks like a big chunk of meat. Um, When we actually think about the human heart, just think about the physiology for a moment with me about the heart itself and where it is geographically located in the body. There's a sense of it almost being in the very center of, of who a person is. And if your heart stops beating and pumping blood around you, you die. The heart is so central to who we are physically. But when we look at the Scriptures, when they speak about the heart, they're referring to the entire person, the very essence, the core of a person. When we use the word, he or she has a broken heart, we're not referring to a damaged organ. We're referring to the fact that the very core, the very essence, the very center of who a person is, has been broken and shattered in Acts 13, 22, we read this. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. And so we come to consider the life of David a very significant, towering figure in the Bible, both in the Old Testament as Israel's greatest king, as well as a significant feature, a significant person who the royal messianic line of which Jesus was born in Matthew 1.1 indicates Jesus being the son of David and his genealogy starting from that very place. The royal succession begins with David. But then right throughout the New Testament, several occasions, and this is just one of them in Mark 10.48, where blind Bartimaeus calls out, to Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. 
And so we see that David is an incredibly important figure. But as I wrote in the weekly view, ultimately we're not studying David. David is a foreshadow of Christ. We're studying Christ. David is someone who points us to Christ. He is a, Jesus is the fulfillment of what David points to. And as Paul said, and as many of us know, David's story is checkered. He has some tremendous victories. He also has epic failures. And yet, what is amazing, as many of us would know, is that he is still called a man after God's own heart. And, and this, to me, is just a beautiful testimony to the grace of God. We see the grace of God exercised in and through David's life and indeed his ministry. Uh, and what the life of David, as someone who is kind of held up as an example of what it is to be a person after God's own heart, demonstrates is that God does not expect perfection from us. And God indeed, in his grace, will make allowance for even some of the most vulgar of sins. But what God is interested in, what God is looking at, is the posture of our hearts. Are our hearts soft towards God? Are our hearts broken and repentant before God? Are our hearts dependent on God? And indeed, as we see in David's many psalms, in a lot of cases, do our hearts delight in the Lord? This is what God is looking for. People whose hearts are soft and broken and humble before Him and whose hearts delight in Him. After God's own heart. As we examine several scriptures through First and Second Samuel, the question will be, what does it look like to have a heart after God's own heart? And we will see that play out in the life of David. And we saw in Acts 13 what was said of David many years after he'd long passed away, that he was being referred to as a man after God's own heart. And I wonder, friends, for you and I, Many years after we have passed away, could in fact be said of us that Phil, that Leander, that Rhonda, that Clive, that Paul, that Karen were men and women after God's own heart. This is certainly my desire for my own life and I pray that it would be your desire for your life as well. Could we pray before we get into 1 Samuel 16? Heavenly Father, this morning we come to talk about such an important subject, our hearts. And by that we mean the very core, the very centre of who we each are. And we see in this morning's text that that's what you're interested in. You're interested in our hearts, our character, who we are as people. And how our hearts positioned towards you. So Father, I just thank you for this privileged time to open up your word now. And I pray that you would speak to us, each one, by your Holy Spirit and draw us closer to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Samuel 16 can quite easily be broken up into two sections. The first 13 verses are about God's choice or Yahweh's choice 
of David. Uh, the second section, and the author has very cleverly put these two uh, narratives together. They, there's certainly some period of time between them. Uh, but then it's a, a comparison with Saul chooses David. And essentially, the chapter is about choice. And it's in both cases, David is the chosen subject. What the author is intending to do in this particular chapter, and indeed uh, from this very point on in the book of Samuel 1 and 2, is set up a significant contrast between Saul and David. And it's a little bit like a seesaw. As Saul declines, David rises. And that's what we see at the very beginning of this chapter. Um, Just a little bit of backdrop for you. The first 15 chapters of Samuel, which we're obviously not looking at, today in chapter 16, is the very first time the person, the character of David, is introduced into the Scripture. This is where his story begins. Uh, But there is a backstory, and the first 15 chapters of Samuel, which we're not going to look at, um, essentially are concerned with primarily with Samuel in the first eight chapters, both his miraculous birth, uh, and then his growing up in the temple under the priest Eli, uh, and then his sort of rise to become the priest and uh, prophet and judge of Israel. And then from verse chapter 9 uh, is the anointing of Saul as king of Israel, and then sort of uh, Saul's checkered um, relationship with the kingship of Israel, as Israel's first king. At the age of 30, we are told, Saul becomes the king of uh, of Israel and is so for 42 years. Um, And then we arrive in chapter 16, uh, and and Saul's kingship is is on the decline. Uh, The Lord has already rejected Saul. Whilst he will continue to remain king for some time, the Lord has rejected him. He has removed his spirit and favour from him. And now we come to the anointing and the choosing of David. Our chapter opens with Samuel the priest in mourning, and he is mourning over the demise of Saul, the king. And what this reveals to us, I think, is a very human side to Samuel. Perhaps Samuel felt a a sense of responsibility that the person that he had anointed as king had ultimately failed the people of Israel, but also had failed God. I wonder if Samuel felt a sense of responsibility in this. And he's mourning. I think there's a, a real sense that Samuel is, he is the elder. He is the priest of the people of Israel. And there is a spiritual mourning going on in his heart. Uh, spiritually, he is mourning for the people of Israel. And I picture uh, this scene where God and Samuel are in a therapy session together. And Samuel has his hands in his face. He is mourning over the spiritual state of God's people. And it's like God allows him some space to mourn. And then he looks at Samuel and says, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. And Samuel kind of immediately responds, Well, if Saul hears about it, he will kill me. And again, I think this just reveals a very human side to Samuel. 
he is concerned for his welfare. Understandably, if Samuel goes to anoint another person when there is already a sitting king, that doesn't look good for Samuel. And so there's a natural human concern here. God doesn't even answer this question. It's a sense as the counsellor, he looks at Samuel as if to say, do you really think I would send you knowingly to your death? And then he just says, very matter of fact, now take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Well, Samuel did what the Lord said. He leaves the therapy session uh, and he, when he arrives at Bethlehem, uh, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Now, we need to understand at this point that Samuel had a dual role. He was both the priest of Israel, but he was also the judge of Israel. It's that whole good cop, bad cop role. Now, did he come as the priest? Or the fear or concern was perhaps he'd come as the judge. And so that's why the elders are fearful that Samuel has come at this stage. Yes, in peace. Ah, you've come as the priest. I come to sacrifice to the Lord. Now, the elders at this stage, of course, think that Samuel is there for a sacrifice. But we, the reader, know that Samuel is there for something far greater than just a sacrifice. He is there to anoint Israel's next king. Consecrate yourselves, he says, which really means go and take a shower. You've got to clean yourself up before we come to the Lord. Only the Lord can clean the heart of a person. But before people came to a sacrifice, it was important they went through the cleansing ritual so that they might present themselves acceptable to the Lord for that consecration. I imagine Jesse arriving with his seven sons, as the writer tells us, and Eliab, the eldest son, being like a captain of a football team, and the seven sons parade to the sacrifice. And Samuel, seeing Eliab, looking so wonderful, looking so much like a strong, valiant, tall, handsome man, like the captain, the leader of the team. And Samuel immediately thinks, surely he is the one. But hang on, did not God say in verse 3 in that therapy session, I will show you which one you are to pick. Also, interesting, have a look and consider Samuel, oh, sorry, Saul's appearance in chapter 9, verse 2. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. Two similar characteristics, handsome and tall. And there's a real contrast here between, or similarity, between Eliab and Saul. It's as if Samuel is about to make the same mistake and anoint another Saul. But God holds him up. Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This one verse uh, is such a pivotal moment, not only in First and Second Samuel, but for the entire history of Israel. 
For God will anoint a man after his own heart, and the royal line of which Jesus is born will come from that very line. It's a, a very prominent and pivotal moment. And what does this verse explain to us? Well, God has very different vision, very different eyesight to what we have as people. We as people are limited in what we can see. We purely see things from the physical, from the outside, and we very quickly make judgments based on what we see with our physical eyes. But God sees much deeper. He sees into the very heart of who a person is. So we need to learn to be very slow to judge. A little note on seven sons, as Jesse at this point has brought seven sons to the sacrifice. You may or may not be aware, but in the Bible, seven is referred to as the perfect number. And therefore, seven sons is considered to be the perfect number of sons. Um, we feel three is more than enough. <laughs> I don't think we could cope with another four. Uh, in Job chapter 1, the author describes Job as this amazing, successful, blessed, righteous man. And the author is looking to try and describe to the reader how blessed Job is. And one of the things that Job is described as having is seven sons. And we don't particularly appreciate what that means. But an ancient reader would have read, wow, seven sons. That man has been blessed beyond measure. In the book of Ruth, it is said to Naomi about her daughter-in-law, Ruth, have you not been more blessed with this daughter-in-law than with seven sons, uh, describing the enormous blessing, of course, that Ruth is. Ruth, of course, gives birth with Boaz to Jesse, or to Obed, who is the father of Jesse, who is the father of David. Um, so just a little note. Now, interestingly, David is the eighth son. And in a sense, the eighth son is the start of a brand new order. Is that not what God is about to do? Something completely new. Now, uh, culturally, the eldest son would be the son who would be chosen, and that's why Samuel went straight for Eliab. But as we see so often in Scripture, God's ways are so different to human ways of thinking. And this immediately makes me think of Joseph, the youngest or the second youngest, um, and how God used him in a mighty way. Uh, are these all the sons you have? Samuel asks Jesse. Well, they're still the youngest. He is tending sheep. Send for him. We will not eat until he arrives. Now, when a great sacrifice happened, uh, following the sacrifice, there was a meal. You know what they're sacrificing, right? Sacrificing animals. And so they, of course, would not waste that food. It would go to a great feast. And so Samuel is saying, we're not going to start this until the younger son arrives. Now, at this point, the reader is, in a sense, anticipating a scrawny, um, ugly, perhaps, uh, character, um, because we've just been told that the Lord does not look at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. And... Um, 
you can see that Jesse's attitude here is like, I, like this obscure son. He's out in the fields. He's, he's the youngest. He's the eighth son. Like, it looks way better if there's seven because that's the perfect number. So as far as the reader's concerned at this point, like this young son is, is the forgotten one. Um, and as we see, he's, he's not Samuel's choice. He's not Jesse's choice. But he's David's choice. He doesn't even have a name. He's not given a name. You notice the first three sons are all named. This younger son, he's not even named yet. The unnamed one is God's choice. Ah, the unnamed one is God's choice. Just let that sit with you for a moment. The unnamed one. The unseen one is God's choice. Do you feel unnamed, unseen? God sees you. This is what we read of David. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel takes the horn of oil and anoints him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Now, David will actually be anointed three times. This anointing right now is not anointing as king. He will subsequently be anointed as king over Judah and then a little bit later anointed as king over Israel. We won't see that until 2 Samuel. This initial anointing is an anointing of God's Holy Spirit, an anointing of God's mark upon David for what would lie ahead. It is a very powerful and significant moment. And in the Old Testament particularly, anointing with oil uh, is, is significant for setting a person apart for a particular role or task before God and symbolically receiving an infilling of the Holy Spirit. What's also interesting is that this was done in front of his brothers. And again, we might think, oh, that's a nice little family affair that's taking place. Uh uh. Culturally speaking, his brothers, particularly Eliab, would not have been happy about what they were witnessing. Now, the author then takes us into another story. And there is actually quite a considerable gulf between these two narratives. The author very cleverly brings them together to contrast, as I said at the beginning, the rise and the fall of Saul and David. Now, the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. We actually see that the Lord removed his spirit from Saul before 1 Samuel chapter 16. Those first 13 verses have all been concerned with David. But now the author takes us into the palace, into the life and the inner workings of the current king of Israel. Saul. And 
again, we just see this comparison. You know, in verse 13, the Spirit of God is poured out upon David. And then in verse 14, we see that God has removed his spirit from Saul. Now, verse 18 enables us to see and appreciate that some time has passed between these two occurrences. One of the servants answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem. Now, at this point, Saul is tormented. He is having psychotic episodes, perhaps what we would normally today consider something like bipolar. You know, he's having fits of rage and so forth, and he needs some form of therapy. And so one of Saul's attendants says, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. Now, in this verse, David is named. Um, sorry, no, he is not. He's still a son of Jesse. But he has a reputation. He has a reputation as a warrior. He has a reputation as a musician. He has a reputation of being a person of standing. And he has a reputation of having the Lord with him. So clearly some time has passed. David is still out as a shepherd. And so David is brought to Saul and musical therapy, if you like, is born. And so David comes to Saul during these psychotic episodes and plays for him on his lyre. And this helps calm and settle uh, Saul down. And it's actually a beautiful picture of grace. Because as the story will unfold, and many of us might know the story, very soon Saul will absolutely hate David. He will become, you know, he will want to kill David. He will hunt him down. But at this point, at this moment, he loves David and he brings David so close to him. And in a sense, David is doubly chosen. He is chosen by God. He is now chosen by the standing king of Israel. There's so much irony in this. The fallen king is now being ministered to by the anointed king and the rising king. And it's just, again, I think a real picture of God's grace. Just really quick, here are four very brief reflections from 1 Samuel 1 to 23. And the first one is around potential and around God's, the God factor, the God um, potential. You see, uh, Jesse and Samuel did not see what was inside of David, but God did. God saw the heart and God saw the potential. And the lesson for us here to learn is that we shouldn't be quick to judge others we shouldn't be quick to even judge ourselves. God sees inside our hearts and God can do with us whatever he chooses to do. So let us not be people who are limited by what we can see, both externally of others, but also of ourselves. But let's leave that up to God and allow his vision to see us and to work out um, in our lives as he sees fit. Secondly, when God calls, God equips. This is a fairly well-known kind of phrase in theology, and we see it here. 
God sets David apart. He anoints him. He calls him as Israel's next king. But he equips him by anointing him with his Holy Spirit. And whilst in Old Testament times, people were anointed with the Holy Spirit for very special and perhaps specific tasks, we now, as the New Testament church, as the people of God, who have all received His Holy Spirit, in a sense, are all called as God's people and have all been anointed for the particular tasks to which He calls us to. So I just want to encourage you that wherever God has placed you and whatever ministry God has given you to exercise, God has not only called you, but God has equipped you. You have His Holy Spirit dwelling within you just as David had God's Holy Spirit. And God's Holy Spirit enabled David to do a whole raft of things that he could not have done without his Spirit. So I invite you as the people of God with the Holy Spirit dwelling within you to remember that whatever God calls you to, He has and will continue to equip you to serve Him. Thirdly, we see a a fascinating piece in this story about God's Holy Spirit. When God's Holy Spirit descends upon David, yes, he is equipped and anointed to be God's anointed one, God's future chosen king, and we will see that God is with David through some incredible challenges. When the Spirit descends upon David, the trouble begins. In chapter 17 that we'll look at next week, it is the well-known story of David and Goliath. And then from chapter 18 onwards, David becomes Saul's number one enemy, and his life is on the run. David's life, from the moment he was anointed with the Holy Spirit, was no bed of roses, nor was Jesus. Think about Jesus after he was baptized. This amazing moment, he rises out of the water, the Spirit of God descends on him, the voice of God the Father, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. We then read in Mark 1, 12 to 13, that the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness where he faces temptation, the evil one, and is surrounded by wild beasts. When the Holy Spirit comes upon a person, trials, challenges, wilderness are not a sign of God's absence. Indeed, they are the scene of of His presence. If God anoints you, if God calls you, and you experience suffering and persecution, First Peter, remember, God is with you. You are not alone. God's Spirit empowers you to be His instrument in that place. Keep going. Stand firm. And as I alluded to just a moment ago, this picture of David ministering before Saul with his musical instrument is a picture of grace. Because we, the reader, know that very soon Saul will have a rageful envy and hatred and jealousy towards David that will drive David away for survival. 
And yet here is a beautiful picture of David just gently ministering to Saul because of who he is and the Holy Spirit that dwells within him. And I see this as a beautiful picture of how we as God's people are to live and operate in a world that is increasingly becoming further and further away from the things in the heart of God. And Jesus said, if they hated me, they will hate you. And so as we seek to be salt and light, as we seek to be the people of God in a hostile environment, here is a picture for us to reflect on. We stay in the courts of those who are unbelieving. And by God's grace, we minister, empowered by His Holy Spirit. And we are not defined by the ones who hate us, by the ones who dislike us. We are defined by God. And we are the ones who have the indwelling Holy Spirit that enables us to offer God's grace and offer God's love and God's peace in the face of persecution and challenge. May we be David's playing a musical instrument, the gift that God had given him, a gift that brought soothing and relief to him. May we be that kind of aroma in Saul's court, in those places where life is difficult. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wonderful word. We thank you for this fascinating and encouraging and challenging story in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Lord, as we've seen, there is so much that we can learn and extract from this. But Lord, let, let us come back to that original thought today that our lives are lived from our hearts and that you indeed are looking at our hearts. And so God, we collectively bring our hearts to you and pray that by your Holy Spirit's anointing, our hearts may be soft, our hearts may be um, broken and humbled before you, and our hearts may learn to delight in you, that it may be said of us that we are men and women, boys and girls, after your own heart. We pray this for your name's sake, for the extension of your kingdom, and we pray this through your Holy Spirit, knowing that you empower us to live lives of grace, to live lives that demonstrate hearts that are soft and tender towards you. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.